0: The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's
1: first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia.
2: Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association. Welcome to season 5 of Retail Therapy, proudly brought to you by American Express. This season I'll be chatting with a great lineup of leaders in Australia's retail industry right here in the Amex Lounge, including the CEOs of some of the biggest retailers in Australia and across the globe. We'll be finding out what makes them tick, what defines their leadership style, and how they got to the top of their game. Joining me for some retail therapy today is Eric Morris, CEO at Brand Collective, which boasts a portfolio of iconic owned and licensed brands with more than two and a half thousand employees. Eric has over 35 years industry experience covering retail, wholesale, licensing, marketing, and product development in both international and national organizations. He has held senior management positions with a who's who list, of household name companies, including Meijer, Disney, and Reebok. Eric knows a thing or two about leadership, to be very modest, so I'm thrilled to have him as a guest. Eric, a warm welcome to you.
0: Thank you very much, Paul, and it's a pleasure to be able to join you today.
2: So, Eric, you've made quite a career for yourself. Please give our listeners a brief overview of what led you to your current role.
0: Well, it's a little bit of a long story, Paul, having been in the industry for as long as I have, but I started out actually third generation of people in the apparel trade, Uh Both my grandfather and father were actually tailors by trade. My father obviously moved on into uh, a career in retail post his tailoring, but it was always in the blood. Started my life out, as you can probably hear, ex-South African, as many retailers in Australia are. Spent many years working more up to the retail ranks with the big retail corporations in South Africa, and eventually broke out on my own and started uh, my own uh, sportswear brand business, Uh, due to the sanctions which were happening at the time in South Africa. Mm -hmm. I ran that for a few years, and then I was approached by Reebok International as they came back into South Africa to actually start the Reebok brand in South Africa, which we did. I did that for a few years and then moved on to Africa Middle East and then on to Asia Pacific and operated out of Hong Kong for Five years looking after the Asia-Pacific region. At that point in time, was offered a job in Australia and came out to Australia and uh, started the Maya private brand business, which was a great journey and good to see a lot of those brands that we started around 20 years ago. Still going. Uh, still in the market today. Hmm. My journey with the group that I'm with at the moment started nearly 18 years ago. It was a private equity buy and build uh, strategy And we went out in, as you're aware, the Australian apparel market was more fragmented 18 years ago than it is now, but it was a roll-up. Went out and bought a whole bunch of apparel businesses across various different segments. We integrated them, we grew them, and we listed the business in 2014 on the ASX. A lot of new learnings as part of the listing process. actually enjoyed the days as a public company. We had a few challenges when COVID hit. Our second largest shareholder ended up buying the business, which is Larry Kesselman. Actually, on on day two when he bought the business, he actually said to me, uh, I'm in it. Who else can we buy? And we ended up going out and purchasing the brand collective business. We ran the two independently for the first probably eight months or so. And we decided to amalgamate the two businesses and bring 130 people out from the Port Melbourne business. Uh, We now have a business which has got 24 brands as well as a number of character licenses and is a pretty large business in itself and continuing to grow. So that's a little bit about my mm. background. As you can see, from what I've mentioned to you is uh, there's been constant evolution, yes. which has been really exciting.
2: Maybe for our listeners there, give me an example of the many brands that come under the brand collective banner.
0: Well, we've got a lot of fashion brands such as Review, Black Pepper, Yarra Trail, Marco Polo. We've got our Design Works business, which is doing a lot of business for the uh, discount department stores and department stores. In that business, we've got a sports division, uh, which has... Everlast, Lonsdale, and Slasinger as its brands. We've also got the Elke Collective brand, Volley, Grosby, Clark's, Hush Puppies, Julius Marlowe, Superdry as well. And then our most recent addition to the portfolio is the Reebok brand, which we took on in may have lost you. Constantly growing. We've got another new one
2: to add to the portfolio pretty soon as well.
0: So we'll announce that as soon as we can.
2: Fantastic. We've got some exciting news there. I've got to ask you, Eric, why do you think South Africans make such great retailers? I think
0: there's probably two main reasons for it, Paul. The first one is through my generation, there was a lot of training. In fact, there still is some pretty good training. A lot runs from the major South African retailers, whether it's the Edgar's Group, Woolworths, Trueworths, for etc. et cetera. So it started out with the really strong training programs. But then again, a lot of the people of my era – had to trade through when there were sanctions and no one really wanted to play with us. So we learned how to do it on our own. And if you can actually look at the most difficult times in retailing without being able to travel, without being able to have access to a lot of things that you had, I think it created a lot of entrepreneurial spirit amongst the retailers uh, of that era.
2: You've actually filled a massive gap in my thinking because I've always wondered, and I think that explains it really Really? Well, and, you know, it just goes to show sometimes in a crisis, innovation is driven and, you know, uh, the entrepreneurialism really comes out. And I think that explains the history. No, there's no doubt about that. Now, one thing that really stands out for me is the diversity of your leadership roles across many different sectors. When you were growing up, did you always think to yourself, I want to be a leader or did that aspiration develop throughout your life?
0: I think it had really started at a relatively early age. Uh, I played a lot of sport through my life. And from the age of 13, I was always captaining either cricket or hockey teams. Uh, Right through my playing career, I was always captaining teams, leading teams. In fact, if you had to listen to some of the people who've been working with me for a long time, they're probably sick of my sports (laughs) analogies because uh, I'm always talking about leadership and leadership in sport. And the only real difference is in sport, you get more instantaneous results to yes. your leadership, like at halftime and after the game. Unfortunately, in, in our business, in retail, it does take a little bit longer to see the fruits or failures of, of your input. No,
2: you, you raise a good point. And look, I'm, you, I'm the last person you want to speak to about sport. I was always the last person to be... Picked it up <laughs> for a sports team. The only thing that was coordinated about me, Eric, was actually my outfit. Other than that, I was actually um, never good at sports.
0: Well, you have got to look the part. It's a starting point.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's good. I'm glad you picked that up. Given you're in the fashion industry, so as well. So it's good to know. Now, how would you describe your leadership philosophy? Um, and do you have a pioneer or a role model you've based your leadership approach on?
0: I think Paul. It's really been built over many years. There's not one particular approach. I think there's constant learning and there's always learning. I'm learning every day about new elements of leadership. I've learned from a handful of very good leaders, but I've probably learned more from really Mm -hmm. bad leaders on what not to do. So I've had, unfortunately, quite a few of those in my time. And you kind of model it on what you see fit you know, it gets built over the years. But I think the most important thing is to be able to get people to do what you want them to do. And if you can do that, they'll do more for you and about bring them along for the journey as well, which is...
2: Well, let's hope some of those bad leaders you speak about are actually listening to this podcast, Eric. They might learn a few things from you, so let's see how we go. (laughs) Okay, we're not not naming anyone. We've both got those experiences, I'm sure. Now, you were at the helm of the Paz Group since 2005, uh, and that amalgamated with the Brand Collective, as you've spoken about last year, to form the company we see today, which is an amazing achievement. That must have been quite an intense transition. So how did you go navigating that time and what advice would you have for anyone navigating anything similar?
0: I think there's so many parts of the journey along the way that uh, probably different learnings of different elements along the way. Um, I think the very early piece was we bought a lot of businesses and we kept the original owners in the business for a period of time. We then changed it and end up buying 100% ownership of a business. There's a benefit in the in the first one, and that is that you keep the continuity. Because a lot of the people we bought the businesses from were in business for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, owning, mm. running the business themselves. So you maintain the continuity. But the negative side to that is that you give somebody a check after they've been owning and running their business for many, many years. And then you try and put processes and tell them Mm. what to do. And that is quite a challenge at times. So there's a couple of learnings around that. But if we then go through different phases, there were enormous amount of learnings through the RPO, through the roadshows, through being a public company. But a lot of learnings as well as we've evolved from that and we've transitioned into amalgamating the two businesses. And the integration Of having two uh, different cultures is never easy, particularly when there's a culture you've built for close on 18 years. And then, you know, on top of trying to amalgamate the two businesses, uh, Reebok comes into the equation and that adds another third uh, complexity Mm. to it. But I think we should never lose sight of the cultural differences that that exist. But probably the biggest learning I've had, I'll credit to an ex-chairman of mine, Bob DL, who was the very first chairman at PaaS, And I'll never forget the day I walked into Bob's office in my very early days, and there was a big poster on the wall, and it was a picture of somebody crossing a stream. And I said, Bob, what's the relevance? Mm. And he said to me, it's to remind myself that you can only have one loose rock at a time when you cross a stream, Good point. which I thought Mm -hmm. was actually quite profound. And I've always thought about that and tried to limit the amount of loose rocks at any point in time. I think the important part about any of these elements is all around communication. Okay, And the more you can communicate, the better. Um, the more open it is, the more free the communication is. As much consultancy that you have that you can do along the way, is preferable. Not always as easy as that, but um, I think some of the those are some of the key learnings.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, it's not surprising that change management is one of your core skill sets, and that is a skill that we've certainly been in need of in recent years. So, what do you see as the key disruptive challenges in retail?
0: I think there's a few of those. Paul, we saw the big move to e and, you know, we looked, uh, we saw that and everyone was talking about the death of bricks and mortar retail. I never believed that. I knew that it's been around forever and it's just going to evolve into what has now become a real omni-channel environment. But what's been interesting to note as we've come out of the whole COVID piece is the preference for people to actually go back and shop in stores. But the importance of online is not only as a shopping tool, but really as a research tool and just really so important that everything is integrated and you can buy from the stores, you can buy from the warehouse, you can ship from the stores, you can ship from the warehouse, whatever it may be. I think that's the the one. Uh, The other one, which I'm sure is quite close to your heart, is the ongoing staffing issues, which are happening in retail post-COVID and will continue to be an issue. I think the general cost of doing business in Australia, uh, you know, when we're dealing with international brands, it's always hard for them to understand the immense costs we've got on uh, labour and on uh, rentals. So I think those will continue for a while and we may see them evolve a little bit. But uh, there's no doubt The, the new one is all around the sustainability and the circular economy, which is taking place. And I think that's a a really important one that we all need to embrace. Purpose is the absolute key point. And whether it's purpose around sustainability, purpose around anything else and. I think the consumers out there these days are always looking to companies who have
2: purpose. Yeah, absolutely agree. And it's so good that you raised that. I'm so pleased to hear. And if anyone listening wants to learn more about sustainability and what we're doing for as an industry, please hop on our website, retail.org.au, sustainability under resources and you'll see, um, and from that, um, hopefully get inspiration around what many retailers are working through right now. So a really great commitment from you, Eric, pleased to hear. Now tell me, what do you enjoy most about the retail industry? You know, you've you had a long... <laughs> History and and hopefully much longer to go in your time in the industry. What do you what do you enjoy most? What drives you each day? It's certainly
0: without doubt the variety it provides. And I think anyone who gets into retail, a lot of people in retail moan like hell about retail. None of us would ever really want to get out of it. So <laughs> it's the variety. It's the constant evolution and the excitement of the constant evolution. And there's just so much to it. I mean, I remember when I first started my own brand many years ago from seeing the design stage and walking around and seeing people actually wearing your products. And to this day, I walk out and obviously got a lot of brands out there in the market. And it gives me great pleasure every time I see someone wearing, whether it's an Everlast good top or a pair of Reebok shoes or whatever it might be. And it's great to see the whole evolution of it. And it's really something which, once it's in your blood, I think is absolutely imperative. And it's exciting. So lots yeah. of sleepless nights <laughs> along the way.
2: It's not for no, the faint hearted. That's very true. But lots of joy, huh? A lot of yeah. joy out of it. Absolutely. Now if you could turn back the clock, Eric, and give one piece of career advice or wisdom to your 20-something self, what would that be?
0: I think it would probably be to go with your gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Sounds a bit corny when I say it. But the amount of decisions that you make, which you have an early feeling about, it could be about product, it could be about people, it could be about anything, more often than not, you actually were right in the first instance. And we tend to, as retailers, wait for too long before we make decisions on any of those elements. Whether it's a bad seller in store, it's always going to be a bad seller, it's not going to get better. Underperforming employees are going to continue to be underperforming employees, they don't generally turn around that quickly. So I'd say that was probably the most important element if I think back on it. Probably another small one which I've tried to focus on throughout my time is just do what makes common sense. If you can do what makes common sense, more often than not, you'll be right.
2: And look, they're really good words of wisdom. I, I. Funnily enough, I only was giving the similar conversation yesterday with a colleague, and you know, intuition has a big part to play in success. Because often we we doubt ourselves, we don't, we second guess ourselves, we we go and get too much information and too much advice, and we don't make decisions. And so important to to listen to what your heart's saying, and um, and equally to back yourself. Yeah, given, you know, in many cases you've seen most of these things all before and you you sort of just gotta keep keep trusting yourself that you're you're on the right track. So really good, good, mm. good, uh, good advice there. Yeah.
0: I'll probably add another point in there just around retail and something that is really, really important and one of my biggest learnings along the way as well is the importance of being resilient. Mm. You know, we've gone through lots of ups and downs over the years in different economic cycles, different businesses you have through ups and downs. But if you can just remain resilient and positive throughout uh, and realize that these are only trends and you know, whether we're going through another down cycle, is just another t- point That's in true. time. We're going to turn around and say, do you remember when?
2: No, very true. And look, we don't deal, the good thing about the industry is we don't deal with life and death situations in many cases, so um, we often we don't. overrate things. Now, tell me how you think about growth and your decision-making process that co- coincides with that because you you definitely um, have such a strong entrepreneurial spirit and you've seen you know, uh, brand collective to what it is today. How do you think about growth?
0: Okay. I think the most important element is one has to start off with a growth mindset and you have to surround yourself with as many people as you can who've got a similar growth mindset. And if you've actually got like-minded people who are all thinking about growth, I think that's a, a really good starting. The most important element when looking at businesses and growth, what I always look at is what is the USP? What is the key proposition and how does it differentiate Mm. itself? And that could result in an acquisition of a new license, a new brand, where we grow, how we grow. And the most successful brands or businesses are people who differentiate themselves. They offer something. It would have to be in product. It would have to be in service. It would have to be in price. It has to be in something. If I look at it that way, uh, that's probably the starting point for it. The way we look at organizations as well, things could be small but have obvious potential. There's often businesses which you look at and say, well… It's, it's tiny, but I can really see it. And we've got a great brand in our portfolio. Uh, I talk about an Elka Collective mm-hmm. brand, tiny brand. We could see the potential in it. And we are rolling out a lot of stores at the moment. It's got a very different handwriting and a USP. So the other one we look at as an organization is uh, what are the synergies? Uh, I'd always say don't be fooled by synergies because sometimes they're not really there. Uh, we know lots of situations in retail where that happens. Um, But they should be a byproduct of what you do. Are there synergies attached to any new business that you get as part of your portfolio?
2: Wonderful. And look, you've certainly developed that eye for success and you've picked many, many winners. Eric, thank you for joining us today for some retail therapy. Congratulations on all the work you're doing at Brand Collective and we wish you continued success.
0: My pleasure, Paul, and thank you for having me.
2: Thanks for joining me today for Retail Therapy in the Amex Lounge. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that follow button on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You won't want to miss an episode. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. If you're a new listener, you can find our back catalogue of new episodes over 50 now on our website. We've covered small business, sustainability, tech and innovation, and we even release a yearly Christmas miniseries. For more information on what we do at the ARA, head to retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, wherever you love to connect. All of the links can be found in the show notes. I'd now like to welcome Kelly Taggart, CEO of Roses Only, to the Amex Lounge. Roses Only is a leading Australian-owned retailer for delivered premium flowers and gifts. Its passionate florists, friendly floral consultants and dependable delivery drivers have brought joy to millions of people all over Australia. Formed in 1995, it brings together 45 years of floristry experience and established 10 florist studios in major cities nationwide, as well as some partner florists. Kelly, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Paul. Nice to be here.
2: Since its inception in 1995, Roses Only would have witnessed a lot of change and development in the floristry business. What are some of the ways you've innovated and evolved the business?
1: Yes, we've uh, certainly seen a lot of changes since 1995. Uh, Back then I think uh, you would have been going into a physical florist shop to buy your flowers and these days you have a lot of options where you can buy online, whether it's uh, through your mobile phone, either calling someone and talking to a real person or buying online through your phone or your laptop. So it really um, provides a lot of advantages there in ways that, you can order in all manner of types we've even had someone that has called in while they were riding a horse uh, and ordered flowers on their way to whatever it was that they were doing riding a horse would you believe it so I guess um Back then also, first when we were online, payment options, uh, there wasn't many available. So, I think we only had one payment option available. And then it's been with the likes of relationships like American Express that we've been able to really diversify those payment options for customers. And even now, uh, recently, we've been able to roll out uh, pay with points for American Express. So, you can pay with your credit card points to buy your flowers, which we think is really cool. So, I guess... The evolution of social media has also impacted our industry quite a bit. The way that we market to customers online, uh, the rise of Google AdWords um, is a major part of the floral industry, knowing where you want to deliver something and being able to search for flower delivery to Sydney or flower delivery to Brisbane. That's generally been on the rise since um, online has increased. Uh, And also being understanding of how we can impact uh, the environment um, with more sustainable forestry as well. And I guess over the last 15 years, we've really focused on being a data-driven company and using that data to make sure that we're not creating the waste in the first place. So making sure that we're buying what we need for when we need it, for when our customers want it, which I'm sure you can imagine is a really difficult task. Uh, we have about 100 different types of flowers and greenery that we manage throughout the year. Um, so you can imagine the complexity that goes with that. And we've been able to get our wastage down to around 2 to 3% overall, which I think is pretty fantastic. Apart from that, though, we're always looking at ways that people are doing things internationally and talking to our local flower farms to see what other sort of uh, business practices we can adopt as well.
2: From before the days of the pandemic until now, what kind of patterns have you noticed in customer behaviour and how has this impacted the way you future-proof your business?
1: I think not much has changed in the way that people still want things really fast and really reliably. But we were already investing in our digital infrastructure for our um, for all of our warehouses around the country. And then when the pandemic hit, we saw a volume really increase. So people were, they couldn't visit their loved ones. They really wanted to send a message of love to people and we saw that really expand and that was a br- really beautiful thing to be a part of. So this meant that the advancement that we've had in our technical and digital capabilities through reliable and scalable digital practices meant that we could really provide great customer service to people uh, and reliable delivery. So I guess with more customers looking at buying online that's meant that we've had a much more expanded customer base to talk to and uh, thankfully uh, they've had a really good experience with us and they've been able to experience our brand and how wonderful it is to send flowers to someone and hear the smile on someone's face when they call you or send you a message and that's definitely driven, driven a lot of uh, customer growth and repeat customers post-pandemic so that's been really great for us.